This is Unfilter, episode 326 for September 10th, 2020. America is now just 58 days away from choosing the next president of the United States. And President Donald Trump is playing defense against an onslaught of tell-all books. CNN has obtained a copy of Michael Cohen's new book, Disloyal, a memoir, and the allegations are damning. For example, in the wake of Trump's presidential kickoff announcement in 2015, Cohen says Trump told him, quote, I will never get the Hispanic vote. Like the blacks, they're too stupid to vote for Trump. They're not my people. Cohen also says that after President Obama's win in 2008, Trump ranted, quote, tell me one country run by a black person that isn't a s-hole. They're all complete effing toilets. And that's not the only tell-all coming out this week. Hello, friends, and welcome to 326 of the People's Podcast. My name is Chris, and the U.S. election is 57 days away, not 58 like the news actor said. Now, with that in mind, there will be some slight adjustments made to your unfiltered program as we approach the election. Don't worry. Don't worry. It's all, I think, for the good. But I do want to make you aware of them, so we'll talk about that later in the show. But as is at least the format for now, we are going to start out with covid and get an update on the numbers here in the U.S. and a vaccine trial that was put on pause. The U.S. death toll from COVID-19 is approaching 190,000, and that is despite stringent warnings from health officials for Americans to continue social distancing and wearing masks. According to the latest numbers from Johns Hopkins University, the U.S. currently has 6.3 million cases of COVID-19, with Iowa and South Dakota emerging as new potential hotspots. Speaking earlier on CBS This Morning, the nation's leading infectious diseases expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci discussed the best ways to slow the spread of the virus in the months ahead. We know, we know that when you do four or five typical kind of public health measures, masks, physical distance, avoiding crowds, making sure you do most things outdoors versus indoors, those are the kind of things that turn around surges and also prevent us from getting surges. So I certainly would like to see a universal wearing of masks. Fauci's voice sounds a little different after his surgery. Now, this comes as one of the companies racing to make a vaccine announced it hit a stumbling block, if you will. Elise Preston explains why AstraZeneca put its COVID-19 clinical trials on hold worldwide. On pause for now, drug maker AstraZeneca is halting its phase three trial of a possible COVID-19 vaccine after one participant came down with an unexplained illness. It's not exactly known what happened to the patient or if it's even linked to the vaccine. Dr. Jeff Ponoff works at University of Wisconsin Health, a testing site for the potential vaccine. He took the drug last week and says it's not unusual for trials to be brought to a temporary standstill. If there's any whisper or a wisp of something that would have gone wrong, or sometimes it's just related to regulatory uh, issues, there's so much paperwork and I's dotted, T's crossed, that they would stop the trial temporarily while they figure something out. That sounds like a pretty convenient answer there at the end, but I'll say this. I think this might suggest that the process is being followed and that when there was an issue, the process was paused. I think that's, I think, a good signal that the, the, the correct processes and safeties may actually be in place 
despite the political pressure around rushing this thing. Now, let's shift gears, and I want you to notice something about this corona report. I find, maybe because I'm a father, but also because it just seems to be such a significant piece to the middle-class economy, I find the returning to school to be a fascinating aspect of the response to the COVID virus. My three children do school from home for the school year so far. I don't know if it's going to remain that uh, starting in January or not, but right now that's the case, and they've loaded them up with Chromebooks and It seems like they've put some work into the online training system, but it's not ideal. In Alberta, they're sending kids back to school. So this is an interesting piece for two reasons. Number one, we get to hear how that's going. Obviously, that's great. But number two, this is what a COVID-19 news report sounds like that doesn't make it all about Trump, because this is the CBC, and they can't make it a Trump story. And so this is just what a straight COVID report sounds like where there are setbacks, there are things that advance, and I think it's also interesting from that study standpoint. At schools across Alberta, optimism has crashed headlong into the reality of restarting education during a pandemic. After the first week of school, more than two dozen people have tested positive for COVID-19. Of those, 11 people from 11 schools were diagnosed while infectious to others. When, there's, when you find out that there's a case, it, it shocks us and it makes, it makes us want to be more, take more safety measures for the future. I'm a bit worried. Like, I think it was handled pretty well, but I'm just a bit scared. I don't want to, like, get the virus or anything. Their principal went further on social media, saying she's exhausted, furious, and anxious, among other things. <laughs> she's having a tough time with it. She's having a tough time with it. Uh, and it's understandable, uh, you know, when you're responsible for those kids. But isn't that fascinating when it's it's not Trump's fault that they're going back to school? It's just part of the report. And I bring that up because I think it's really been maybe the most disappointing thing about the COVID-19 response is how partisan it's become. I appreciate that it is an election year and that they believe that they, being the parties, believe that uh, COVID-19 is probably the number one election issue. So it seems inevitable in that context, but it is refreshing to just hear a report. Now, we go to the other side where President Trump decided to sit down with Bob Woodward and apparently revealed shocking details. President Trump, in his own words, making clear he knew about the dire threat of the coronavirus very early on, at a time he repeatedly told the American people they were safe, that China was on top of it, and that it would all soon pass. And the president, again, in his own words, making clear he deliberately withheld information from the American people, repeatedly concealed details about the gravity of this threat, because, in his words, he didn't want to create a panic. This is an interesting story. So this is journalist Bob Woodward. He he did a series of interviews with Trump over a period of time. Um, and in there, he recorded audio of those interviews and has begun selectively selectively releasing it to certain media outlets. Correspondent and associate editor Bob Woodward's latest book on President Trump entitled Rage. Robert joins me now. Robert, what have you got? Well, my colleague Phil Rucker and I for The Washington Post have read Bob Woodward's new book. It's called Rage, and it has uh, an enormous amount of information based on more than a dozen interviews Bob Woodward conducted 
uh, with President Trump from December 2019 uh, through July of 2020. And if you read our article that just posted on WashingtonPost.com, uh, we lead with a, a meeting in January of 2020 where Robert O'Brien, the national security advisor, and Matt Pottinger, the deputy national security advisor, told President Trump in late January that the coronavirus threat was the biggest threat, the gravest threat that President Trump would ever face in his presidency. And then a few days later, in early February, uh, President Trump speaks with Bob Woodward on the phone, on the record. And to be clear, the Washington Post through Woodward has acquired tapes, tapes of President Trump speaking about all this, these interviews with Woodward, and Woodward has decided to publish the tapes. And in this early February call, February 7th, the president says on the phone to Woodward that the virus is deadly. He repeats, it's deadly. You know, instead of listening to them recount the call, I'll just play the call for you. I went and got the largest section of audio I could, so that way you guys get as much of the context as possible when something's been selectively released. Here it is. And so what was uh, President Xi saying yesterday? Well, we were talking mostly about the uh, the virus, and I think he's going to have it in good shape, but, you know, it's a very tricky situation. It's, uh, it, it, goes, it, it goes through air, Bob. That's always tougher than the touch. You know, the touch, you don't have to touch things, right? But the air, you just breathe the air, and that's how it's uh, passed. And so that's a very tricky one. That's a very delicate one. Uh, it's also more deadly than your, you know, your even your strenuous flus. You know, people don't realize we lose 25,000, 30,000 people a year here. Who, who would ever think that, right? I know. It's, I mean, much it's pretty forgotten. amazing. And uh, then I say, well, is that the same thing? For, this is uh, more for deadly. This is 5 per, you know, this is 5% versus 1% and less than 1%. You know, so this is deadly stuff. So it seems that two things are empirically true, that Trump did seem to know about the scope of the coronavirus and that he knew it was worse than the flu. The other key element in there is that he seems to be intentionally, at least he claims, and I seem to recall this being a defense of his back then, but he claims he's playing it down because he didn't want to create a panic. So the media takes this and they decide, well, let's get input from someone very impartial, an expert who would know how to respond to situations like this. There's only one person we can ask. I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. So the president's explanation is that he was trying to play it down because he did not want people to panic. Your comment about that? That was taped on March 19th. The fact is that the coronavirus and the threat that it was is a reality. And president should face that reality. And the way to avoid a panic is to show leadership. A pandemic situational expert Nancy Pelosi says that it's leadership that you must show. But couldn't one argue trying to prevent panic and a total economic collapse uh, is leadership? I imagine every president during their term is faced with a crisis in which they cannot share the true extent of the crisis with the American people. I mean, the, the 2008 financial collapse certainly uh, had elements of that initially, but also even just small things like during Obama's uh, run, uh, when they were uh, sending in the troops to shoot Osama bin Laden in the head, Obama was out and about in public, talk, pretending like nothing was happening at a, at a press event. Um, 
could you say that's misleading? I mean, that's it's tricky because it just kind of depends on your perspective. You could say that Nancy Pelosi didn't take it very seriously. You could you could make an argument that she down in Chinatown on February 22nd was reckless and misleading the public. You should come to Chinatown. Precautions have been taken by our city. Uh, we know that there is a concern about tourism traveling all throughout the world, uh, but we think it's very safe to be in Chinatown and hope that others will come. But this is an opportunity to really kind of pounce. Did he take it seriously enough? Was it some sort of negligence that let it get out of control as fa- faster or perhaps we didn't tamp it down soon enough? On the day that we hit 190,000 dead in the United States because of COVID-19, we just learned from the Washington Post columnist Bob Woodward that the president of the United States has admitted on tape in February he knew about COVID-19 that had passed through the air. He knew how deadly it was. It was much more deadly than the flu. Joe's in fired up mode. He's got two gears now, high energy and low energy, and this is the high energy Joe. You do kind of wonder how sincere he is, though, since he called Trump extremely xenophobic for shutting down inbound flights. So you do wonder, like, what would have Joe done at that particular point in time? Hard to say, right? You can't. You can't know. He knew and purposely played it down. Worse, he lied to the American people. He knowingly and willingly lied about the threat it posed to the country for months. He had the information. He knew how dangerous it was. But he did have the Corona Task Force assembled by the and had them working on it around the clock. In fact, when he first launched the Corona Task Force, and I have a link in the show notes, he was criticized not only for overreacting, but also because it wasn't diverse enough and that it was a bunch of white people like Dr. Fauci. Links in the show notes. That's from CNN. I mean, he literally every step of the way, there was pushback from the establishment. And while this deadly disease ripped through our nation, he failed to do his job on purpose. It was a life and death betrayal of the American people. Experts say that if he had acted just just one week sooner, 36,000 people would have been saved. If he acted two weeks sooner, back in March, 54,000 lives would have been spared in March and April alone. Now, if you follow this thing all the way through, this is the core logic that you have to accept for really the whole failure to act stuff to sink in. So if he knew all of this in February, he could have acted sooner and saved more lives. But that's hypothetical, right? It's sort of like assuming what Biden might have done had he had the information and he was in the White House. You can take a guess, but it's kind of hypothetical. And the problem is... Nice fucking model! A lot of these are based on models that haven't really panned out. You know, his failure has not only cost lives, it sent our economy in a tailspin. It cost millions more in American livelihoods. This is a recession created by Donald Trump's negligence, and he is unfit for this job as a consequence of it. You know, this is the one that gets me the most. If he had acted sooner, he would have locked down the economy sooner. And the economic effects would be even worse. And he wouldn't have pushed for opening the economy sooner with their plans that encourage governors to open back up and the economy would be even worse. If he had treated it more seriously, we would be in a worse economic situation. This is a bit I'm going to play this again because it doesn't if you think about it, it doesn't make any sense. He's if he had gotten his previous argument, then this argument would be sort of invalid. You know, his failure is not only cost lives. It sent our economy in a tailspin. It cost millions more 
and American livelihoods. This is a recession created by Donald Trump's negligence, and he is unfit for this job as a consequence of it. The only way that he could have successfully avoided an economic shutdown would have been to completely avoid the action would have been completely avoid the virus coming into the country at all, because even in areas where there's five people that have gotten it, we shut things down. So it would have been a total prevention of the coronavirus coming into the United States. Now, even when Trump shut down the inbound flights, he was being criticized for it. So even at that point to the general chatter class, it seemed like a very aggressive move. I'm not trying to justify anyone's action in here. It just it's sort of like trying to assign blame and figuring out what went wrong before we've even solved the problem. There will be a time for a postmortem, but right now isn't it. The issue is Joe's got an election to win. How many schools aren't open right now? How many kids are starting the new school year the same way they ended the last one at home? Now, this I don't get either because they're arguing against schools being reopened, but now he's criticizing him for schools being closed. Again, the only way this could be a valid argument is if there was a way to, in totality, prevent the virus from ever reaching U.S. shores. It's the only way this this argument makes any sense. Otherwise, he's literally criticizing him for actions that he would have taken himself only to a greater degree. Starting the new school year the same way they ended the last one, at home. How many parents feel abandoned and overwhelmed? How many frontline workers are exhausted and pushed to their limits? And how many families are missing loved ones at their dinner table tonight because of his failures? It's beyond despicable. It's a uh, dereliction of duty. It's a disgrace. So there's a great this is for the campaign, though, for Joe's campaign, a great thing to jump on a report like this. And. Now that we've got Trump on this, he could have acted sooner. The media really can spring into action and build up around this narrative. And as they are right now for the last couple of days, it's, it started. I really noticed it. It's so funny, man. Wednesday morning, all of my inbound feeds all started covering this. Boom, 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 because that's when they started slicing and dicing out the audio. That's when the Atlantic piece went up. That's when then shortly after that, the Washington Post piece went up. And, and we really kind of very quickly got to see momentum. We switched from one controversy in the morning, boom, right? It's starting at the morning news, new controversy. And now we have ourselves this, this narrative of it shows us that he could have acted sooner. So now we have to get alignment from the governors and from the senators. We all need to pile up. And whenever they can get someone on the right to pile up, that's a big deal. And that's what they tried to do with Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana. Only it doesn't quite seem to work. The most stringent uh, shutdown in the country. It just clobbered the uh, New Orleans economy. And uh, we worked very closely with uh, the Trump administration on trying to help small businesses and, uh, and to help people. So my experience has not been that the Trump administration ignored this virus. Uh, quite the contrary. In fact, the governors uh, seem to be quite pleased. There was several other interviews where they were, they kind of get on that subject and they quickly jump off because we don't want to give them credit. Don't give them credit for it. Uh, I have listened to some of the folks testify and say, well, if we had known this, we could have saved X number of lives. I don't put a lot of credence in that. There will come a time when we can look back and we'll learn. Okay, Senator, let me let me just I, I let you talk. I wanted I wanted to okay. hear um, what you had to say. 
how disrespectful, right? I mean, not that like I, I put these politicians up on some pedestal. Don't get me wrong, man. It's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is this is an elected official, for, a representative of the people in the U.S. government. He at least has some position of authority. This is completely inappropriate for this news actor to just just shut up. Just shut up. I, I, I let you speak. Now I'm going to ask you a question. I mean, it's so disrespectful. And she's just a high-paid news actress, it's just like all of these people on CNN. Okay, Senator, let me, let me just, I, I let you talk. I wanted, I wanted to okay. hear um, what you had to say. But Good. the bottom line is he told Bob Woodward privately that this was a deadly virus and that it was airborne. Didn't the public, didn't the, the citizens in your home state of Louisiana deserve to know that as well so that they could change their behavior appropriately to protect themselves? Well, number one, Pamela, I'm not going to repeat what I just said, but I, all I can tell you is what my personal experience has been. <laughs> not a bad answer. So she comes at it from another angle. To see if she can kind of pin him down with this. Now, what's great is she's got she's got an earpiece. So when you are debating a news actor, you're also debating the people in the production booth that are given her little cues and whatnot. Only this time, it kind of backfires. Okay, so you're saying, look, it's about actions. They speak louder than words. Right. The president knew in February, we have, it, we have him on tape, uh, telling Bob Woodward that this was airborne. And yet he, can, he went on to hold six rallies packed with mm -hmm. people uh, that were not wearing masks. And he called the coronavirus uh, the Democrats' hoax those right. were actions he took and he had the knowledge that's okay with you well you're gonna have to talk to the president and mr woodward but what do you think what do you I don't, think well i don't know if it, i haven't seen the the transcript you i haven't, haven't read the you haven't heard you haven't Pamela, heard Pamela, let me let me finish let me play it for you really quick so that you can hear it and respond okay guys can we play it when he said that And we're prepared and we're doing a great job with it and it will go away. Just stay calm. It will go away. I wanted to uh, I wanted to always play it down. I still like playing it down. Yes, sir. Because I don't want to create a panic. OK, so there you heard him say, I wanted to play it down. I didn't want to cause a panic. But didn't hear him say what I said he would say, which how often does this happen? where they, they go on and on about Trump said something, Trump said something. But when you look at the actual transcript, it's not really what he said. Mm -hmm. We didn't, we don't have, I don't believe we have the audio of the other things he said about it being deadly and airborne. If we do, guys, let me know in my ear. Um, but he's, he knows this. He's saying he's downplaying it, and yet he's holding these rallies where he's calling it a hoax. You're okay with that, with, with people crowded in together. Well, once again, Pamela, I haven't read the transcript. I don't know the context. Uh, you just played an excerpt for me. What I heard the president say was that he didn't want, didn't want the American people to panic. It doesn't really seem like they have much of a case, but it's all about volume here. Um, you got to wonder, too, like, isn't there something they could go after Trump that is like hook, line and sinker? That, it, that isn't easy to just explain away as the president doesn't want to cause panic because it's the media themselves that always argues the words of the president carry so much weight. That's why what he tweets matters so much. That's why the crazy things he says in press conferences, it matters so much. That's why they can't play his disinformation COVID daily updates because it just matters what comes from that White House. And they can't play it because it has so much weight. So now all of a sudden... 
The president isn't supposed to take that into consideration. He isn't supposed to pick and choose his words carefully and, and try to set a tone. Go after him for something he's truly done that's really costing lives during this pandemic because it's right there in front of all of us. It's obvious to see, and I'm going to play it for you in a moment, um, because I think this, if if they just had any brains, if they could just set their hate aside, their their pure orange man bad rage, if they could just get above it, there's such an easy way to kneecap Trump, to just Tanya Harding that guy. But why did Trump, I'll get to that, but why did Trump agree to this Bob Woodward interview in the first place? And what is wrong with him? Bob Woodward has already, last year, released a negative book about the Trump White House. I don't understand why he would agree to interview with this guy. He was clearly hostile. Here is a bit of the reporting from uh, early 2019, I believe. Famed reporter Bob Woodward made headlines once again this past week with his new book about the Trump White House entitled Fear. This morning, his first television interview with our David Martin. You look at the operation of uh, this White House and uh, you have to say, let's hope to God we don't have a crisis. For Bob Woodward, that is the bottom line to all the jaw-dropping chaos and discord described in his new book, Fear, Trump in the White House. Now, this is fascinating. So let's hope we don't have a crisis. Well, I think a pandemic counts as a crisis. So old Bob figures, well, let's follow up with Trump and see how it's going. So they, the White House, the, the press secretary, they all must have known that this was going to be a hostile, well, quote-unquote hostile. I think you could say it's hostile in the form that press should be, which is constantly checking and pressing against power, which it feels more like what Bob's style of journalism is rather than the CNN, MSNBC, ABC, NBC, etc., CBS, etc. style. Old Bob has been doing this for a long time, too, so maybe that's why. Maybe just because he's an old-school guy, but he's been doing this for years, going all the way back to Watergate. And here's a clip, and I found this to be an amazing little bit of time travel. Here's a clip of when he released a book about Obama while Obama was in the White House, which did not happen as much as it does under Trump. And what is really interesting is this was a time when we were facing one of the first really big federal shutdowns, which has now almost become commonplace. In fact, I believe as I record this, we only have a soft deal in place, a tentative deal in place to avoid a federal shutdown in about 20 days as I record this. That's how common they've become, and we're not freaking out about it. We'll see where that goes. But here we go, a little slice in time when Bob did some interviews with Obama, and they were dealing on the precipice of another shutdown like we are now. You will get a glimpse behind the closed doors of power and into the dysfunctional relationships that can make or break this nation. Bob Woodward is best known for uncovering Watergate, but his new book takes us into the Obama White House, where last summer's clash with Republican leadership brought America to the brink of financial Armageddon. Tonight, you'll hear tapes of the president and Speaker of the House tell their sides of the story. And what happened in the heat of those crucial moments could provide large bore election year ammunition. ABC's Diane Sawyer has the exclusive first look. That guy sounds like he's trying to push out a poo. Now, what's really kind of fun is when you're listening to this, when they talk about the Tea Party, in your mind, swap that with the AOC camp of Democrats. When they talk about how Speaker Boner 
isn't talking to Obama. I remind you that right now, Pelosi and Trump are not speaking. It's such an interesting switch. When the balance of power was in different positions, there was still talk back then about partisan politics and the radical Tea Party, which now there's talk about the radical progressives and AOC and about Pelosi and Trump's relationship. All of those dynamics were in play before, just at a different volume level. And also note maybe the tone of coverage, the different tone as well. It is the kind of moment that tests a president, the nation on the edge of a financial cliff. You really say in the book, nobody was in charge. Isn't it the president? And is that a failure of leadership? You know, some people are going to say he was fighting a brick wall. Others will say it's the president's job to figure out how to tear down that brick wall. For 44 days last summer, Barack Obama was hostage to events outside his control. The Republican Congress, newly dominated by the Tea Party, threatened for the first time in history to have America default on its debts. Journalist Bob Woodward takes an inside look at what's called the debt ceiling crisis. His book is The Price of Politics. You talk about it as the financial equivalent of the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's so serious that they couldn't tell the world how bad it was at the time. The president and Speaker of the House John Boehner, the chain-smoking son of an Ohio barkeep who is skilled in the art of backroom negotiations. Still, Boehner has to deal with his new Tea Party caucus some of whom seem to want to see the U.S. default. One point of meeting, I look at myself, I look at the president, and I just start chuckling to myself. Here, you're listening to House Speaker John Boehner as he talks to Woodward about one of his early meetings with the president. All you need to know about the differences between the president and myself is that uh, I'm sitting there smoking a cigarette, drinking Merlot, I look across the table, and here's the president of the United States drinking iced tea, and chomping on Nicorette. <laughs> did you offer him a cigarette? Oh, I did not. I did not. Nor did he ask for one. President Obama spoke to Woodward in the Oval Office. By that time, I'd quit smoking, but you know, I was making sure he had an ashtray. <laughs> you know, the, the uh, you know, he'd, he'd be having a sip of wine, and we could have a good conversation. And I personally think he genuinely wanted to get something done. So, I'm feeling fairly optimistic. Woodward calls it the Merlot and Nicorette's meetings, and initially, the two sides inch toward each other, and a place they'd never gone before, entitlement cuts plus tax increases. But then a single phone call will sink it all. The president says he simply called with the possibility of getting even more taxes. Even now, the two men disagree on what they heard each other say. I want to be very emphatic here. At no point did I say, John, take it or leave it. What I said to him was, you have to tell me how many votes do you plan to put on this thing. His position is he was not saying I have to have it. He was saying I want you to consider it. No, no, no. No, no, no. Hold on. No, no, no. No, no. I need $400 more than I need. And I pushed back a couple times. And uh, he said, no, no, I need $400 billion. You need to think about this. Boehner is livid and worried about the fractious rebels in the Tea Party. He refuses to return the president's three phone calls over 19 hours. This time, Boehner says the president erupts. He was spewing coals. Oh, he wasn't. Oh, he was best. 
Look at this bus. And he called one of $400 billion. Uh, he knew there he wasn't going to get a damn dime more out of it. The stakes could not be higher. The U.S. now 11 days from default in front of the world. Somebody said, well, can we sell national parks? Can we sell? And the Treasury Secretary says, it won't work. We won't get enough money. For his part, the president was now certain that some hardcore members of the Tea Party had decided to let the whole thing blow up rather than give him a deal. There were very prominent Republicans in the caucus who told me to my face that the view in the caucus was that getting a deal with me would ensure my reelection. <laughs> it's really, I think it's fascinating to see how it's all, how it's all covered, covered and how it's changed, but how much hasn't changed at all. And that's just a little slice of what Bob's known for. And so I was really surprised that Trump was willing to even entertain a second round. But at the end of the day, I don't really see what I see is back in February, the narrative was Trump's incompetent. He doesn't realize how bad this is. He's going to he's going to bungle this thing. And now the narrative is Trump knew how bad this was, but he just wasn't telling us. And I don't know how much weight that's really going to have. We'll see how much play it gets. Uh, I think. I think we should have gotten a little bit more airtime was Andrew Kuman over in New York. He's still doing his daily Corona briefings. Yes. And I tuned in and I thought his jab about the funding situation that's going on was was pretty choice. And I wanted to share it with you. And now they won't provide federal funding to help repair the damage from the ambush they created. That's where we are. Federal government must provide a response. If they don't provide a response, the national economy will suffer for years. Every economist says that. Uh, they don't want to provide a response. Why? Because they're playing politics. They don't want to help democratic states. They don't want to help democratic cities, right? This is a war on cities. New York City, Portland, Chicago, right? These are the enemies from the president's point of view. Look at his tweets. These are the locations and the outposts of the enemies. So don't provide them any funding, even though we caused the COVID virus. I think that is pretty astute. Not the that Trump caused the COVID virus, but that one of the influencers and the thing that I believe they, if they could get on record or if they could get somebody to testify would truly be the thing to go after Trump's response in this pandemic. And that would be that his good and evil, everything about Trump dynamic has led him to this point where he is intentionally letting Democrat cities and states suffer to punish them to politically punish them for not loving him, to punish them for being Democrats, to make them hurt. They are the enemy in Trump's eyes. And that's truly the thing he's done that is inhumane. Have those cities screwed up? Like, look at Portland and Seattle. What a embarrassment. What a freaking embarrassment. Do you see that guy who got caught on fire and then ran around? I mean, so embarrassing. These videos just keep coming out.
It's when I travel and I'm getting gas, it always happens when I'm getting gas because people see the plates on the car in the RV and they ask me, what do I think about what's going on? And they have just, just like befuddled look and they truly can't comprehend why it, why it's continuing. And I, and the time, the more time I spend outside my state, I have to agree. It, it seems ludicrous. So I, I do understand the bit of the mentality about, well, the Democrat cities, run cities, have, have laid their own bed essentially here. But at the same time, this is a humanitarian thing. This is a pandemic. This is when the president's office has to go above and beyond such matters. And they, if they could get him on the record or get audio of him or get someone to testify, he's intentionally hurting those cities. They could bury him. But instead, they're focusing on he didn't want to make people panic. Also, you'll notice that Kuman's still going on. That's not a Chinese virus. Donald Trump caused the COVID outbreak in New York. That is a fact. <laughs> okay. Okay. It's a fact, guys. I mean, it's a different kind of fact, but it's absolutely a fact. <laughs> Just a... Uh, update on the pending election and how that's going to impact the show here in the show section section um, and also a note that I'm taking next week off at least next week off potentially the week after kind of depends on the forest fires uh, my stress levels and how much retooling is necessary for the back end of the show because while I take a production break the show while the production break is happening will be shifting into election mode so prepare yourselves, especially those of you outside the states. It's not to say that it's going to be all election all the time in the show. It's just really to concede the reality that the life in life in the U.S. is going to be very election focused until November. And I, I think you probably understand that. So I'm planning to live stream the debates and election night. I'd love to have you join me for that. Let's, I think the debates might actually be a lot more fun even the election. We'll see. Because I don't think we're going to get any kind of answer or resolution on election night. So I'll live stream the debates. I won't be releasing those as episodes. I will release them to the patrons. But I don't think they're probably for general consumption. And then election night, when I do that special episode live, uh, that I will that I will uh, release as the main episode. I'll either be using Mumble or Discord. We'll figure that out for the audio. So that way you can jump on the show and, and chat with me and get your take. I think it would be a lot of fun for the debates. So please do join me. For that, and you'll have more information. The first debate happens, I think, what was it, September 29th, if I recall. Um, so if I'm not back by then, I definitely will be back <laughs> for the debate. Also, just as an aside, when I say I'm taking a week off, if something really massive happens, I usually find a way. <laughs> I'll, get, I'll get you something in the feed. Just make sure you're subscribed to unfilter.show slash subscribe and don't worry it's not going to be only about the elections but it will be a major shift for the show it's just the reality of the world we're if here's how i would do it guys if chris ran the world what i would say is no talk about the election no biz about the election until 60 days out and then at 60 days out we get really serious about it we start the campaigning we start the campaign ads we start the debates and we really just hyper focus that period of time on picking a candidate. Instead, what we've what we do now is we essentially drag it out for the entire first half of a president's 
run. And then it's always essentially, I mean, Trump almost immediately started campaigning. It's just, it's always, it's always, it's just gotten worse and worse, actually, the older I've gotten. And it just runs and runs. So I try in this show to keep it focused on the news that actually matters. But as the election approaches, it begins to merge into everything. Even this show is a real trick to try to not make it all about the election because so many of the stories are just pitched in that way. Anyways, I just want to let you know, no episode next week, potentially no episode after that. I will let you know, though, and then we're going to take the election a little more seriously. Doesn't mean I won't stop covering their stuff, but I think we're good, right? You got me? You got me? Also, thank you for supporting the show, patreon.com slash unfilter. I just can't. You may have heard something about Julian Assange this week, but haven't seen very much coverage, haven't seen what's going on. That's because nobody really is talking about it, except for a few select sources. So I'm going to try to get you an update on Assange, who's finally back in court after a really long COVID delay. Well, we're going to turn right now to London. This week, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange is appearing in court for the first time in six months after his extradition hearing was delayed due to the coronavirus pandemic. Assange has been held in London's high-security Belmarsh prison since he was arrested in April 2019 at the Ecuadorian embassy in London, where he had taken refuge for almost seven years. Seven years. I think I cut that a little tight right there. The DOJ pulled some real bullshit, though, when Assange showed up at the courthouse finally. As Assange arrived at the courthouse Monday, he was arrested on 18 new charges from a U.S. indictment filed in June. Assange is wanted in the United States for exposing U.S. war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. He faces 175 years for espionage and hacking charges. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you heard that right. 175 years. And they slapped him with 18 new charges when he showed up at the courthouse, <laughs> which, by the way, isn't a U.S. courthouse. <laughs> but they they still slapped the uh, American DOJ showed up and uh, got him. And the court session started. But then, honestly, I haven't really heard much since it was paused after Assange had what was called an outburst. On Tuesday, the proceedings were briefly adjourned after Assange shouted, quote, nonsense, as James Lewis, a lawyer acting for the U.S. government, told a witness that Assange was facing extradition proceedings over the publication of the names of informants and not for handling leaked documents. The comment was a response to witness Clive Stafford Smith testifying that documents published by WikiLeaks had exposed, quote, grave violations of law, such as targeted U.S. drone strikes in Pakistan. The judge warned Assange he would be removed from the courtroom if he yelled again. So the goalpost is getting moved a bit here. Um, the U.S. Department of Justice has this issue. Number one, they want to nail him for helping Edward Snowden. So that, that's part of these 18 new indictments. But number two, there's this wiggling problem that they, they got to have an answer for, and that is some of the U.S.'s mainstream outlets, like the New York frickin' Times, ran some of the very stuff that Assange published. But nobody at the New York Times is in trouble. So they had to shift it a little bit and change what some of some of what they say the egregious was. And the legal advisor, you may have heard of her before, because I, I, I think there was rumors that Julian Assange and her were dating at one point, but 
and then those, those evaporated. But Jennifer Robinson says that six plus months of total COVID isolation where he couldn't see his legal counsel was extremely hard on Julian after being trapped in the embassy for seven years. And then he ends up with six months of total isolation. He got 30 minutes to meet with his lawyer before the trial started. And she believes that they actually had a somewhat decent case. And that's why the U.S. had to essentially move the goalposts. Of course, you mentioned in your opening that we've now have had not one but two superseding indictments. He was arrested on a second superseding indictment on Monday that the Department of Justice issued in June. We were first told that it made no substantive difference and we're now told that those new allegations, which include allegations related to Edward Snowden and providing assistance to the NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden, uh, now are part of the case and could form part of separate criminal allegations if he is returned to the United States. This is part of what we say the US government is trying to shift the goalposts, as it were. Uh, we heard from our defence counsel in court on Monday that, of course, this, perhaps in, re- in response to the strength of our case, that the US government is now shifting and changing its case almost 18 months after this started and after the closing and submission of evidence from both parties. It is a very unusual and highly irregular uh, process in any kind of extradition case and certainly one as unprecedented as this. There has been some protests that have popped up around the courthouse. Julian Assange's father was there. He says that the judge hates Julian and that he that the judge is biased against Julian. I don't have high hopes for how this is going to go for Julian Assange. Um, nothing in there about assisting Russia, though. No, like international laws broken. Maybe they're going to get to that. I'm sure, I'm sure, right? Because obviously he was working for Vlad. Another story, not getting a lot of play. I had to go to another kind of uh, outside of the normal range of sources for this one to get kind of media coverage. This is from Leo uh, on Security Now or on the Twit Network. And they're covering the ruling around NSA surveillance that was delayed after a while. Yeah, the one that Edward, yeah, like seven years ago. Yeah, that one. The one that Edward Snowden exposed. Yeah, that one. Well, it's been ruled illegal. The U.S. Court of Appeals has now ruled that the mass surveillance of Americans' telephone records, which we learned about thanks to Edward Snowden seven years ago, was illegal. And that intelligence leaders who defended the program lied. Lied. Uh, Edward Snowden released uh, this statement, I never imagined I would live to see our courts condemn the NSA's activities as unlawful. And in the same ruling, credit me for exposing them, yet that day has arrived. The court said there is no evidence uh, of it saving any lives or preventing any terrorist attacks. They said that the claims that the surveillance program had played a crucial role in fighting domestic terrorism were inconsistent with the contents of the classified records that the program had violated the FISA Act, but the ruling doesn't do anything. (laughs) It will not affect the convictions in 2013 that uh, they claim were uh, based on that information gathering. The ACLU said today's ruling is a victory for our privacy rights. So it's what we all knew. The NSA's bulk collection of American phone records was unconstitutional, but no harm, no foul. We'll just move along. Boy, it really sucks if you were maybe sent to indefinite prison or just regular old horrible prison 
on evidence that was collected with that program that has now been deemed illegal because uh, your case isn't getting overthrown. You're just going to sit there and rot. It's, it's good that it's been ruled illegal, but it sucks that it just doesn't seem to matter at all. Like, nothing's going to change. I don't even think that they've probably, st- I mean, they'll say they've stopped collecting the data, but they also claim they weren't intentionally collecting U.S. citizens' data back then. And the numbers are outrageous. Like, like, like the ratio of accidental collection was astronomical. Like they would target five people and accidentally collect 17,000 U.S. citizens' <laughs> data and recommend, and just total internet traffic, <laughs> just accidentally. Like five terrorists, but because they could do like this within three connections or whatever crap it was, I think it was actually five connections, uh, <laughs> like like the Kevin Bacon thing, because they could because they could Kevin Bacon their NSA data, they got like 17,000 when they go after five people, and it's no big deal. Oops, you know, oh well. At least that terrorist is in indefinite jail, so we're good there, right? Man. And I guess some of it just, you put it all in context right now because I don't normally cover natural events that happen, but this one is literally in my backyard and the just devastating wildfires that are happening here in the Pacific Northwest. Deadly wildfires out west. Nearly 200 fires are burning right now in Washington, Oregon, and California, and thousands are still racing to evacuate. The Creek Fire in Northern California, one of the largest right now, is burning an area the size of New York City's Central Park every half hour. ABC News Chief Meteorologist Ginger Z. Yeah, every half hour. And just across the mountains from me, just on the other side of the Cascades, where I was actually planning to head tomorrow, fires are raging. Further east in Whitman County, across the mountains, such a devastating scene there. People are surveying the damage in the tiny town of Malden after a fast-moving wildfire destroyed almost the entirety of that town. About 300 people live in Malden, and the Whitman County Sheriff estimates that about 70% of all the homes there were burned to the ground. The people of Malden are stunned and trying to cope. We got one of those situations where it's been really dry, and the winds shifted, started blowing towards the ocean, which is not usually the case, and they picked up and just carried fire. It was a hell of a thing to watch. Uh, just some of the most incredible live news footage I've ever seen in my life was watching these firefighters try to prevent these houses from burning down. Really hell of a thing. And I'm not sure where I'm going. After I get done recording, I'm heading out, but I don't know where yet because these wildfires are everywhere. Smoke is just covering the Pacific Northwest right now. So my thoughts are to anybody who's been affected by some of those things recently. Just awful. It's not something I normally put in the show, but it seems like how many things can you happen at once? You know, hurricanes and pandemics, elections, and just the entire West Coast is on fire. You should check out some of the satellite imagery if you haven't yet. It's remarkable. There's just a giant stream of smoke coming off the entire West Coast of the country. Hell of something. All right. Back on track, let's talk about the election because the election's everything right now in the U.S., unfortunately. And it really just has been a barrage of controversies. We can, we can almost, you can, you can almost set like a clock. Like there's a, there is a 24 and a 48 hour cycle for these stories right now, it seems, to, at least to my observation. Only now they're beginning to merge as we get closer to the election. America is now just 58 days away from choosing the next president of the United States. 57. And President Donald Trump is playing defense against an onslaught of tell-all books. CNN has obtained a copy of Michael Cohen's new book, 
disloyal, a memoir, and the allegations are damning. For example, in the wake of Trump's presidential kickoff announcement in 2015, Cohen says Trump told him, quote, I will never get the Hispanic vote. Like the blacks, they're too stupid to vote for Trump. They're not my people. Cohen also says that after President Obama's win in 2008, Trump ranted, quote, tell me one country run by a black person that isn't a s-hole. They're all complete effing toilets. And that's not the only tell-all coming out this week. According to The Washington Post, former FBI agent Peter Strzok alleges in his book, Compromised, that investigators had to consider whether Russia was secretly controlling Trump. It strikes me that, well, two things. You know, with me, it's always like I can hold two ideas in my head, and I think you can, too. And one is I could see a 70-something-year-old man potentially making comments like that. It's a horrible thing to say, but I can see it. Number two is the sources here. Cohen, a felon, and Strzok, a corrupt FBI agent who has done more damage to the reputation of the FBI than anyone has done in my lifetime as far as I can actively recall. I mean, this is... This is unbelievable, the sources that are being propped up here. After he took office, he writes, given what we knew or had cause to suspect about Trump's compromising behavior in the weeks, months and years leading up to the election, it also seemed conceivable, if unlikely, that Moscow had indeed pulled off the most stunning intelligence achievement in human history, secretly controlling the president of the United States, a Manchurian candidate elected. Also, to just give more airtime to xenophobic Russia hating is unnecessary. Now, the president's character is also under fire for alleged remarks about America's war dead. A former senior administration official tells CNN that Trump referred to fallen U.S. service members in crude and derogatory terms during the president's 2018 trip to France. There's a lot going on here. So let's talk about some of this. Um, (laughs) There is the piece that the Atlantic ran with unsourced comments that she's referring to there that kicked off days of fury. President Trump was incensed today about a report in the Atlantic magazine that claimed in November 2018 the president said he was canceling a visit to the Ain Marne American Military Cemetery in France because the war dead interred there were losers and suckers. Now, there's nobody that considers the military and especially Uh, people that have given their lives in the military. To me, they're heroes. The official reason for calling off the visit was bad weather. It was raining, low clouds, and Marine One couldn't fly. In an email, the president's military aide writing, Team, we are a bad weather call for today's lift. Chief of Staff General Kelly will replace POTUS for today's ceremony. Just to double down on that for a moment, uh, there was a freedom of information request regarding this event. And there was an official military document that said because of weather it wouldn't be safe. That There is documentation in that regard. So that kind of is at least worth noting, I suppose. Honestly, guys, this exhausts me. This shit really exhausts me. Trump said this. Trump said that. Oh, no, I didn't say that. And Trump's such an idiot when it comes to responding to this stuff. He just makes it so much worse. And again, it's like hold two ideas in your freaking head. One idea is that Trump would need to kind of justify and have excuses for why he didn't go to Nam, right? Bone spurs, right? He's got to justify his bone spurs. So I could say, oh, you know, these guys are suckers for going to Nam. I could see that kind of talk from a guy like Trump. At the same time, 
actions speak louder than words in D.C., and he's done quite a bit for the military. He's spent way more money on them than I think he should have. And he gave them Space Force, <laughs> which, you know, is a t- it's going to be, that'll be the largest money sink probably ever launched. It'll be the biggest, most expensive military branch ever launched. It's a huge give to the military-industrial complex, and it gives them work forever, indefinitely. So I think he's done a lot for the military, the established military. But I could also see him being a jackass and shucking and jiving about people who died in Nam, and, you know, generating a narrative why it was perfectly fine that he didn't go. That is absolutely possible. Either way, this is an election year. These kinds of things are opportunities. Campaign trail Biden in a Pennsylvania backyard meeting with union supporters. Thank you all for your service. A small socially distanced gathering, all wearing masks. Four people. He also took aim over a report alleging the president called fallen soldiers suckers and losers. Now, this is a different event. They edit it like it's the same. When it comes to veterans, he's downright un-American. That's right. You tell him. You tell him. And then at that event, which which is where that second part of that clip was, he was tossed some of the softest softballs in the history of softballs. And I'm going to break it down for you after we play it. Thank you, sir. Uh, This morning, in reference to that article in The Atlantic, in a call convened by your campaign, Kazir Khan said that uh, the comments demonstrated that President Trump's life is a testament to selfishness and that his soul is that of a coward. You've talked about this as a different view of how you see the job of president. But when you hear these remarks, suckers, losers, recoiling from amputees, what does it tell you about President Trump's soul and the life he leads? (laughs) How's that for a softball? Now, what's great is that reporter that was asking the question is connected with the people that are releasing excerpts and bits of the story. So he's connected with the story. And then he goes there to that Biden event to ask him why he isn't more mad at Trump. It's the softest of softball moments. It's a completely different game that they're playing with him. And, and Biden is savvier about how, on how he can jump on these opportunities when Trump just digs in. And you got to figure sometimes when he digs in like he does, it's maybe because there's a little bit of truth to it. Could be a little bit of truth to it. And maybe that's why he gets so defensive. Perhaps he protests just a little bit too much, methinks. But my favorite Orange Man bad moment wasn't really all that huge, but I felt like it was a goodie. And that was the moment Trump made an outrageous statement that the Pentagon wants endless war. Here it is. I'm not saying the military is in love with me. The soldiers are. The top people in the Pentagon probably aren't because they want to do nothing but fight wars so that All of those wonderful companies that make the bombs and make the planes and make everything else stay happy. Now, I'm going to make this point. This this is a prime example of of how desperate we're getting as we get close to the election. Everything the orange man says has to be bad. They have to disagree with everything he says because he has to be so far out there that everything he says is an attack on our norms. (laughs) Now... If you think about what he said there, the Pentagon wants endless war. That's about one of the biggest no-dust statements anyone in government has ever said. But the media plays ignorant, shocked at such a statement, shocked that someone could say that. It's an attack on the Pentagon. And this is such a great way 
where the media has to play like something that's so obvious is still outrageous. And ABC News political director Rick Klein joins me now for more on this. Rick, we just heard the president's facing some new backlash after that comment saying top military officials want to keep waging wars in order to keep defense contractors happy. This is unusual for a sitting president to criticize Pentagon leaders like this. What do you make of it? It is, it is beyond unusual. I haven't seen anything like this. I know there's some comparisons to Eisenhower and the military-industrial complex. But so it's not beyond unusual then? Because you just made the comparison, which would mean it's not beyond unusual? Unusual. I haven't seen anything like this. I know there's some comparisons to Eisenhower and the military-industrial complex. But to be clear, this is the commander-in-chief talking about the brass in his own Pentagon, military chiefs in his own uh, administration. Generals want war? What? It's it's ludicrous. And, uh, you know, the ironic thing is, and this is a point that was made on Rising, which I'm about to play a clip from earlier, is I think something that hasn't been verbalized but is fundamentally true about Trump. The absolute best thing about Trump has nothing to do about the man himself. It's the people who hate him. Because he's hated by all the right people, the pharmaceutical companies, the establishment, the media, the Pentagon generals, they all hate him. And they're the kind of people that the public hates. So the right people hate Trump and the, the wrong people love Biden, I think is truly part of it. Now, why do I bring all this up? Why beleaguer, beleaguer whatever, this point? Because I know you could be a you could be a Democrat, you could be a Biden supporter listening to this, and by this point you might be pulling your hair out. If you are, I I I respect your ability to continue listening this far. I really truly do. But here's my thoughts on this: If Democrats don't go into this situation facing reality, they're Biden candidate. If they don't go into this accepting the reality of the situation, then they're going to suffer losses like they did in 2016. There is a reason why the Democratic Party lost to a reality television show. I mean, Trump isn't even a proper Republican. And he still beat you. You have to accept reality to appreciate what was wrong, what failed, where was the core issue that could lead to something like this? Why is there so much energy around Bernie and Trump, but there is hardly any energy around Biden or Clinton? I think it's important that we have to be completely open-eyed about these kinds of things. You can argue that they're both very flawed candidates, and you have a reason why you like your flawed candidate, but we have to be realists. And if I'm being real, this story about the troop stuff, while I can see Trump saying something like that to justify getting out of NOM, doesn't really pass the sniff test. It smells more like a manufactured story for the election. And Sagar from Rising, I think, sums it up pretty well. So I'm going to play his clip. All right, Sagar, what's on your radar? Well, right now, the media and the political class is obsessed, not with the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, not with the destitution that so many Americans face at this time, but instead with a story that allegedly occurred 30 months ago in which President Trump allegedly called dead war heroes losers and suckers and refused to fly to a cemetery for an American World War I dead during a state visit to Paris in 2018 because he was worried about getting his hair messed up. 
Now immediately, my neocon radar went off. This story happened 30 months ago. It's dropping now. The sourcing on the story is incredibly vague, alleging that four anonymous sources quoting the president saying monstrous things about troops, and the timing of it all just didn't really make a lot of sense. More so, the story on closer examination begins to quickly fall apart. And the more I look into the circumstances around it, I see it as one of the most successful episodes of manufacturing consent in recent months with grave consequences for the strength of the Pentagon war machine here in the United States. Let's start with the most salacious part of that story. Jeffrey Goldberg, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, he writes that Trump canceled a visit to honor American war dead during that visit to France because he didn't want his hair messed up in the bad weather. Why should I go to that cemetery if it's filled with losers, he allegedly said. Now, that's terrible. Frankly, believable, given what he said in some of the past about John McCain. And a slew of Trump aides who were actually there when Trump supposedly made the comments, though, have come out. They've denied that report, including people like John Bolton, who absolutely want him to lose and would have included such an anecdote in his book to sell more copies if he could have. And look, given their track record, we probably shouldn't believe any of them. But look deeper, and even liberal Jason Leopold at BuzzFeed cast out on that tale, given the documents that he obtained earlier showing that the U.S. military is actually the one that canceled the trip because of bad weather. Now, could they all be lying? Maybe. Frankly, it's not even really the most important part of the story. The most important part, in my view, is how we're all glossing over the obvious political and economic benefits that this story has for the very worst people in Washington. As I mentioned, the author of this story is The Atlantic's Jeffrey Goldberg. That matters a lot. Why? Well, Goldberg has long been a tool of the national security state. He had an aide pushing for war with Iran, war in Syria, and war in Iraq. Don't take my word for it. Take Glenn Greenwalds, who, as usual, has the receipts and lays out Goldberg's long history of agitating for war, making the case for the invasion of Iraq, and how Goldberg himself is most responsible for manufacturing the lie that Saddam Hussein was in league with al-Qaeda to perpetuate the 9-11 attacks and laid the groundwork for public support for the invasion. Why am I even making this about Goldberg? Well, he's the only publicly identifiable person in this story. Goldberg's sources were all anonymous, not because they fear for their lives, but because they fear for tweets. That's literally the reason that Goldberg gave in a recent CNN appearance. Well, like, you know, like you, when you're faced with the same situation, you always ask for people to go on the record. Sure. And then ultimately you have to make it when they don't want to go. And we've both experienced uh, why people don't want to go. They don't want to be inundated with uh, angry tweets and, 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 and all the rest. Uh, and we push hard, and um, that's why you have to sort of do this reporting with even uh, more belt and suspenders approach. So we have a dubious story pushed by a notorious errand boy for the deep state and by cowardly members of the national security bureaucracy. Why? Why now? Two answers. Both of them have to do with perpetuating the war in Afghanistan. On the very same day that Goldberg dropped his story, hours earlier, the Trump administration appointed Will Ruger to be the next U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan, who happens to be the first nominee to that country, which has called for a total and complete withdrawal of U.S. forces. Interesting, right? Even more interesting, literally hours after the story dropped from The Atlantic, an advertisement was ready from a group called Vote Vets, which debuted on MSNBC's Morning 
Morning Joe describing Trump's so-called comments. Vote Vets claims they had no heads up about the story and they worked throughout the night to produce the ad. To which I say, hmm, interesting timing. What was worse than all of that, though, was the behavior of the so-called journalists. Biden emerged from the basement for an emergency press conference where, I kid you not, the very first question was from a staff writer for The Atlantic and where a journalist asked what that story tells Biden about Trump's soul. Yeah. It's a manufactured story with maybe a nugget of truth, like so many of them have been. It's all about the framing of the coverage, too, because you could dismiss a lot of this or you can work it into a narrative. And here's a fun trip back in time again. We have the time machine on this uh, week's episode of the show. If I go back to 1988, yeah, we're going back a bit again. We've done this once before. You can change the perspective on just covering Joe Biden. So listen to the shift in coverage when he's no longer part of the establishment, when he's not yet quite in that establishment class. He doesn't quite get the same kind of love. Democratic presidential candidate Joseph Biden today faces a controversy. Three weeks ago at a debate at the Iowa State Fair, he used phrases identical to those delivered by British Labor Party leader Neil Kinnock. Biden seemed to be claiming Kinnock's vision and life as his own. Why is it that my wife is sitting out there in the audience is the first in her family to ever go to college? Why is Gladys the first woman in her family in a thousand generations? To be able to get the university. My ancestors who worked in the coal mines in northeast Pennsylvania and come up after 12 hours and play football. Eight hours underground and then come up and play football. It's because they didn't have a platform upon which to stand. There was no platform upon which they could stand. The notion that every thought or notion or idea you'd have to go back and find and attribute to someone, I think is quite frankly, uh, ludicrous. The problem here is that Senator Biden told his audience he'd just been thinking about these things and he failed to give any credit at all to his famous British speechwriter. You know, I was thinking on the way over here. (laughs) Now that's a little too much because as you point out, what's behind the words? What's there? And a lot of people, the rap on Biden has always been that it's just a surface. I should have said, to paraphrase Neil Kinnock, It's the only time I didn't in all the times I've ever used it. But CBS News found a tape of a second instance. It reappeared in the New York Times with a new charge, that Biden had appropriated a famous litany from the late Robert Kennedy about what the gross national product cannot measure. It cannot measure the health of our children. The health of our children. The quality of our education. The quality of their education. The joy of their play. Or the joy of their play. Biden gave Kennedy no credit. He has also quoted or paraphrased John Kennedy, Hubert Humphrey, and British Labor Party leader Neil Kinnock, all without credit. Now, the thing that I love about this is it really very much feels like coverage of Trump does today. It has that sort of critical sense. His law school class, that he does not have three degrees from college, and that he was not named outstanding political science student in college. Newsweek says Biden actually went to school on a half scholarship, ended up near the bottom of his class, 
and one only one degree, not three. Joe Biden ranked 76th in a class of 85 at the University of Syracuse Law School. I mean, this guy comes off this whole thing as a flyweight. Now Biden says Newsweek is right. His memory had failed him. And I'd be delighted to sit down and compare my IQ to yours if you'd like, Frank. Joe Biden was victimized by the truth. Bye-bye, Biden. He may not know it yet, but I think this is very going to be very difficult for him to recover. Is Joe Biden dead meat, yes or no? I think so. Bob? It's in terminal condition. Terminal. Eleanor? Yes, unless he comes in third in Iowa. Morton? <laughs> Just like talking about Trump, isn't it? Isn't it? Isn't it fascinating? Now we go to 2020. This is the last bit of my... This is just the last bit. I I have to get this out of my system. We have to recognize this problem. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a right or left issue. Remember, this is an establishment issue versus the people. That's the way to think about this. Now in 2020, Biden's the establishment candidate and Trump's the outsider. And listen in the tone of coverage now. This is the press covering Trump when he went to Kenosha. President Trump visited here today over objections from local leaders in an effort to draw attention to destruction from recent protests. In objection to local leaders. But while he was in a meeting with local law enforcement officials today, he refused to answer a question about systemic racism in policing, the issue at the heart of much of the unrest here in Kenosha. He makes it sound like it was a question they asked him, doesn't, don't they? But of course, it was a question the press asked. And we begin tonight with President Trump in the newest American flashpoint, traveling to Kenosha, Wisconsin, amid unrest over the police shooting of Jacob Blake, shot seven times in the back at point-blank range. The president touring areas damaged during protests, meeting business owners, hours after comparing the officers involved in the shooting to golfers who, quote, choke, missing a three-foot putt. <laughs> now here is the CNN coverage of Biden going to Kenosha. Point by point on his notes, uh, you know, just just questions, concerns from from folks there who have been able to speak up about, you know, their children and education and mental illness and the health and the, the prison system. But I want to go back just briefly. I mean, obviously he's there in the wake of the the Jacob Blake shooting. He's met with the family today, and he was mentioning Charlottesville. And again, you know, when Joe Biden announced he wanted to run for president, what did he say? He wants to fight for the soul of this nation, and that is precisely what he is trying to do in making his case to become the next president of the United states slightly different in tone in what they focus on but you could probably replace biden's name it's just variables depending on if he's their guy or not it's dirty it's dirty and i i think what this election will tell us this is one of the reasons why i think it's important we document it how much does does the media influence the election how much does it actually set the conversation in the public, at least in the states, because I see how the media affects people outside the states and their perception of events that are going on here. I see that, especially with my family in Canada. I see that with my friends across the pond. But it that's understandable, right? You're not here. You only see what's represented. And only certain kind of establishment views generally make it much outside our borders. But how will it impact the citizens of the United States and their opinions and how they vote? Because it has been a nonstop campaign like that since before Trump went into office. Will it have material impact? Russiagate, impeachment, now all of this stuff with the soldiers and COVID, all of the stuff that gets piled on there constantly. If it has no material impact 
and he wins the election. What the hell does that mean? It's going to be fascinating to see if there is some kind of impact. I really don't know. And it'll be really interesting to see how it all changes if Biden gets into office. How will the news report? Will they be more like that CBC report that we played? Or will they go after Biden? I don't think so. I, I expect that the news industry will have a bit of a recession, a little mini recession, because they have exploded. News as a business has exploded under Trump. It's tremendous. I've played clips of them bragging about it on the show. Because it's a it's you know, it's like such a it's such a product right now because things are happening at such a rate. People want to stay informed. There's more ways to stay informed than others or than ever, I should say. But what happens when it's when it's dialed down a little bit? We'll see. That'll be really interesting, too. Now, remember, I'm out next week, but I still appreciate the support. Patreon.com slash unfilter. If anything major breaks, of course, I'll break back in on the feed. Unfilter.show slash subscribe. I learned. I learned a lot. And I learned that. Uh, Thank you for joining me. Anyway, I'll see you soon. Bo, uh, Bo is associated here. Anyway, the point I want to make is uh, I learned so much. I learned so much. I learned. Black, white, all colors, all backgrounds. What I mean. Come on, man. Men, women, gay, straight. Everyone deserves a shot. You know. Come on, man. You know the thing. You know what I mean. You know the thing. You know what I mean. Come on. I learned that uh, I got hairy legs that that, 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 that that turned blonde in the sun. And the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down so it was straight and then watch the hair come back up again. And I learned about kids jumping on my lap. I love kids jumping on my lap. Oh, uh-oh, I'm in trouble, trouble. What are we nuts? Dead, dead, dead. You know, come on, man. Give me a little break here. Get a life. Taking cocaine or not? What do you think? Huh? Come on, man. Black, white, all colors, all backgrounds. What I mean? Come on, man. Men, women, gay, straight, everyone deserves a shot, you know. Come on, man. You know the thing. You know what I mean? You know the thing. You know what I mean? Come on, man. You have a problem figuring out what you're from me or Trump, and you ain't black. Come on, man. The corn pop was a bad dude, and he ran a bunch of bad boys. I can hardly wait to meet with that guy who is the stable genius. Come on, man. I am uh, very willing to let the public judge my physical and mental filter. My physical as well as my mental fitness. <laughs> Come on, man. Poor kids are just as bright and just as talented as white kids. Wealthy kids. Come on, man. I mean, come on. Take a look at the record. I know a lot of weed smoke. Come on, man. Black, white, all colors, all backgrounds. But I mean, come on, man. Men, women, gay, straight. Everyone deserves a shot. You know, come on, man. You know the thing. You know what I mean? You know the thing. You know what I mean? Come on, man. Why the hell would I take a test? I am, uh, I, 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 I